If you'll please open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've already made reference to it a couple of times, but it is not chapter 5. That is a preacher's worst nightmare when you show up and the bulletin says something than other what you prepared for. So I think Rodrigo was trying to play a prank on me, and he did. So, But we are in chapter 4 because that is the sermon I prepared for us. We'll be in verses 13 through 18. Follow along as I read. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come to you and we thank you for the gift of your word that you've revealed your mind and your thoughts and your will to us. God, we pray this morning that you would give us the ability to hear and believe your word, allow it to impact our lives, and allow it to lead us to glorify you more and love you more. Pray that you be with us this morning. Amen. Well, I've never attended a non-religious funeral service. That doesn't mean I've never been to a funeral of an unbeliever. But as I thought about it, I realized I've never been to a funeral service where there was no reference to God and there was no reference to the afterlife and there was no hope of the deceased one now being in a better place. I thought that was really interesting. And as I thought on that, I decided that at least some of the reason for this is that it's the culture we live in. In America, but particularly in the South and the Bible Belt, there's at least a general belief in God and Christianity, and therefore there's a general optimism in hope after life. However, this was not the case in first century Thessalonica. The culture there held a very pessimistic view of death. They believed that this life was all that there is, and there's nothing after. And so there was little to no hope to be found when they were faced with grieving over a deceased one. And this fact is clearly seen in some of the writings from that time. One of the letters written to a family of a recently deceased one reads, I am sorry and weep over your departed one, but nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. A tombstone discovered by archaeologists also reads, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. And to summarize it, the 
best we can. One of their philosophers' main sayings was, hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. And just as we are heavily influenced by the ideas and culture around us, so are the believers in Thessalonica being influenced by these ideas. The gospel that Paul had brought to them said that there's life after death. But everyone in the world around them shouts, there's nothing. You're foolish. Well, some time has passed since Paul has left them. And a few of their loved ones have died. And you see that the problem that starts to develop there. As the Thessalonian Christians are torn between two conflicting worldviews, they begin to fear that somehow the believers who died before the return of Christ will miss out on the joy that's to be had when he comes. Fearful questions such as, where are our loved ones now? Or what happens to them upon Christ's return? Begin ringing in their head and lead them to begin doubting the hope that was brought to them by the word of God. So this is precisely the issue that Paul has in mind as he writes to them in this section of the letter. And in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, we see that Paul writes to inform them of the truth so that they may be encouraged rather than fall into despair. Look with me at verse 13. We read, do not, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And immediately... Paul impresses upon us that there's two types of people in this world. There's the hopeless and the hopeful. Remember, the Thessalonian church is grieving because they fear their dead will miss out on Christ's return. And their fear of those people missing out tells us that they believed Christ's return could happen at any minute. And after 2,000 years of the church proclaiming this, I believe it's very easy for us to become deaf to the reality of it. We'll say, yes, I affirm Christ will return, but it's not going to happen today. It won't happen in my lifetime. But I want to tell you as clearly and seriously as I can that it is an absolute and undeniable truth that Christ could return at any minute. It could be before you go to bed tonight. It could be before you order your food for lunch after the service. And it could very well be before we leave worshiping this morning. Amen. It's a very serious reality which we must give serious thought to. If he were to return, and at the time of his coming you were not able to say, that you know him as your personal Lord and Savior, and that he knows you and died for your sins, then you would be left without any hope. Or if you were to die before he returns, and your faith and trust were not solely rooted in him, you would have no hope. You'd have no hope in the life after death. You would have no hope of being found innocent before a righteous judge. You would have no hope of Christ interceding on your behalf. 
You would have no hope that God would welcome you into His kingdom. You would have no hope of entering into the presence of the Lord. You would only be left with the hopeless despair of hearing the words, I never knew you. You would only have the hopeless despair of receiving the punishment for your sins, which you are responsible for. You would only have the hopeless despair of forever being shut out in the presence of God. Some of you may be thinking, why would I emphasize this right now? Why, in a church setting where we come every week to gather and worship our Savior, should I speak to those who have no Savior? Well, friends, I do so because the truth is that with as many people are in this room, it's not only a probability, but a certainty that not all of us have a saving faith in Christ. Yes, you may have been born into a Christian household. You may have been raised in a Christian household and taught all of the stories of the Bible. You may have been married in a church by a preacher. You may have had children and raised them in church. You may tithe and you may have been baptized and you may attend church every week. And you very well may be a member of this very church. But if your faith is not in Christ alone, then you have no hope. No hope that will last. Jesus Christ Himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. And just a few minutes ago, we sang the words, On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So I have to ask you, do you believe that? With all of your heart? Or do you tend to believe on Christ the solid rock I stand? Most other ground is sinking sand. Do you believe that the moral ground, the ethical ground, and even the religious ground is sinking sand unless it's built on the foundation of Christ? Friends, I'm trying to impress upon us the urgency of caring for your own soul. Christ could return at any minute, and then it would be too late to give thought to these things. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. One of my favorite pastors writes, You may tell me that you must live, but it is my duty to remind you that you must also die and be prepared to meet God. What should you think of a man who in a time of famine fed his dog and starved his child? Should we not say that he was a heartless and unnatural father? Well, heed that you do not do something like this yourself. Do not forget your soul and the anxiety for your body. Do not in your concern about the life that is now Forget that which is to come. Do not neglect your soul. Friends, as plainly as I can, I say, trust in Christ as your only hope of salvation today. If you are trusting in anything else, it is my duty to tell you that it is sinking sand. 
Christ is the only hope. Moving on, we see that Paul tells the Christians they should not grieve as others do who have no hope. It's important that we see that Paul does not say Christians are not allowed to grieve. There have been some who have tried to say, if you grieve at all, you reveal you don't truly believe what the Bible says, and you therefore reveal that you have no salvation. But to put this argument away as simply as possible, let's remember John chapter 11. Jesus, upon hearing the death of Lazarus, whom he knew he was going to raise, grieves over the loss of a loved one, and we're told that Jesus weeps. So you should never be afraid of acting in the same way as your personal Savior. There's no shame or guilt or sin in grieving over a loved one. And never let anyone tell you that. And so grief in and of itself is not what Paul is prohibiting, but instead he's showing that Christians have the distinct privilege and honor of grieving in an entirely different way than the world around them. Rather than being hopeless, they are to grieve as ones who are hopeful. But why are they to be hopeful? What is it they possess that the world does not? We see the answer to those questions in verse 14. We see very plainly that Jesus' death and resurrection is the reason for the hope. You see there in verse 14, Paul writes that Jesus died. And we know that Jesus gave himself as an offering for sin, sacrificing his life for the people he came to save so that their sins would be forgiven and they would now be seen as innocent before God and would be accepted before him. By Christ's death, he destroys death. But physical death still occurs. So why is this? How can we know with any certainty that there really is salvation in Christ? How can we know Christ defeated sin and death if death seems to still be reigning? Well, you see it there in verse 14 as well. It's that Jesus died and rose again. And it's the resurrection that stands as the foundation of our faith and what we boast in. Christ has conquered the grave, and we know this as a certainty because the tomb's empty. He rose victoriously. And in this way, the death of Christ transforms death for his believers. No longer do Christians die. But in verse 14, you see that they are asleep. And this is how Scripture speaks of deceased believers. It never says that they die, but that they sleep. But it never once says that Christ sleeps, but that He died a true death for us on our behalf. The Christian can boldly proclaim that God became a man and took on flesh so that He could offer His life as a sacrifice to atone for sin and then they can go on to say that their Savior really was the Son of God and He really did secure their forgiveness because the tomb's empty and there hasn't been one tiny bit of evidence that has come forward that says otherwise. 
And here's the really neat part of what Paul's getting at. It's the encouragement that he's offering these Christians. It's that they have union with Christ. Somehow, in a way which our finite minds cannot understand, and we can't fully understand, the Scriptures reveal to us that we are joined to Christ and share in all of our blessings through Christ. Because Jesus is holy, His people are made holy. Because Jesus is the Son of God, His people are adopted into the family of God. And because Jesus is without sin, His people are now seen without sin. And in this particular passage, we're taught that though Jesus died, He rose again and ascended to the presence of the Father. And since we are joined to Him, though you may die, you will resurrect again and ascend into the presence of the Lord. That's what verses 16 and 17 tell us. Paul tells the Thessalonians not to grieve because their loved ones will rise again and be joined to Christ as we all go together to meet Him. We can find peace and comfort in knowing that any of our loved ones who are trusting in Christ at the time of their death are in His presence now, and we will one day see them again. Paul is trying to emphasize that our union with Christ is inseparable. Nothing can separate us from Christ. And this is why he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So friends, once again, these truths are inseparable. The rock-solid foundation of the believer's hope is grounded in the finished work of Christ. Nothing can undo it or overthrow it. A Christian can grieve with hope because they know that their Savior is risen. Well, there still may be some who doubt and say, yes, but that was Jesus who was resurrected. How can I know that I will be or that my loved one will be? We're just, just men and women. We're mortals. That was the immortal God becoming man. How can I know that God will raise me? 
It's the amazing part of this passage that Paul seems to anticipate this line of questioning, and I want us to see how he handles it. Look in this passage and look at the different ways which Paul gives the titles to Jesus. In verse 15, he says, We declare to you a word from the Lord, that we who are left to the coming of the Lord, in verse 16, the Lord will descend. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And in verse 17, we'll be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And in the entire letter of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Paul references Christ at least 57 times. And only three times does he simply say Jesus. And in all three of those instances, it is when Paul is referencing the physical human, bodily resurrection of Christ. It's in verse, chapter 1, verse 10. Wrong page. It says, We wait for the Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then it happens twice in verse 14, where Paul says that Jesus died and rose again. Only three times does he use this. This should catch our attention. Why does he do it? He's emphasizing the humanity of Christ. That God raised a human from the grave. Therefore, God can raise another human from the grave. If you are joined to Christ, you will rise again because the tomb is empty. And Just as a side note, no one's that good of a writer by themselves. Like, if you've ever doubted the inspiration of Scripture, you can go to all the theological arguments, or you could just read the Bible and see how complex and beautiful it is and say, yes, God has inspired these men in a supernatural way. Paul's not that smart and witty, and it's just amazing. If you ever doubt the inspiration of Scripture, just Read it and, and pray that God would reveal to you the beauty and truth of the Scriptures. The last thing I want us to see from this passage this morning is that our theology must inform our practice. And I feel like I say this every time I stand behind this pulpit, but I'll say it again today. Our theology is practical. And it must inform our lives. That's what Paul's getting at. They proclaim that Jesus died and rose again, but they're being tempted to live in a way that reveals otherwise by grieving without hope. So Paul is getting to the point that if this is what you say is true about Christ, it must directly impact Tuesday morning. It must directly impact your workplace. The two are connected, and the problem in Thessalonica is that the two were disjointed. And Paul's trying to set this back right. So if you want to see growth in the Christian life, if you want a greater love for God and His Word, then pray and read the Scriptures and ask that God would help you see how to apply it to your life. Simply just knowing big theological words and being able to make good apologetic arguments is worthless if we can't live holy lives in light of those truths. Don't stop at mere knowledge. 
keep pressing deeper and deeper and praying that God would work in your heart to believe these truths in a way where you live them out. Well, we remember that Paul's purpose of the passage is to inform so that they may not grieve without hope, but find encouragement. And we see that it's the theology being applied which encourages them. So study the scriptures and pray for God to give you wisdom. Now just to paint a picture of how drastically different the hopeless and hopeful are, let's reread that letter by the first century unbeliever, written to an unbelieving family in time of loss. It says, I am sorry, and I weep over your departed one. But nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. There's no encouragement there. This writer has no encouragement or hope to offer people. And you can see, just from listening to it, how, how much despair there is. There's no true comfort. But now let's turn our attention to listen to the voice of one who is hopeful. This letter comes from a married couple who are Christians as they write to their friends and families to inform them of a loved one who has passed away. Listen for the sound of hopefulness here. This past year has proven to be both emotionally and physically challenging for Greg and me. It all began November 3rd, 2017, on a family trip to Branson. Louise, Greg's mother, got up during the night to go to the bathroom. In the process, she fell, broke three ribs, and hit her head. We eventually learned what happened to her was a stroke. Her health stabilized after the first of the year, but then a slow, incremental decline occurred that ended in a 14-day hospital stay and 10 days in hospice before she passed away the morning of June 28th. Louise was Greg and mine's last living parent. And of the four deaths we have experienced, Louise was the most peaceful and serene. She was surrounded by her family when she took her last breath on earth and entered the presence of the Lord. She did so gracefully and with confidence, knowing she would be with Christ. We were with her until the end, praying over her, comforting her, and letting her go through our tears of sadness and tears of joy. The Lord was gracious to us during her homecoming, homegoing, and He has continued to be so throughout the remainder of the year. You can't overlook the drastic difference between those two letters. One has no hope, and one has immeasurable hope. And what is the difference between the two? Does one have more willpower or a better outlook on life? Does one have a better resolve? No, the difference is Christ. 
Christ is the only difference and the only hope. Louise entered into the presence of her Lord with hope, knowing with certainty that though she faced death, she would be with God. And Greg and Hope grieved faithfully because they knew with certainty where their mother was going. This is a strength that only comes from the Lord. It only comes from the Lord. Jesus took on flesh, defeated the grave, resurrected, and ascended into the presence of the Father. And one day he will come and gather his people to himself. And we see how that will happen in the later verses of our passage. The dead in Christ will rise first, then those who are left will be joined with them, and all of them together will go to meet the Lord in the air. And this is where their joy is found. No longer are they in a world with death and sin and pain and suffering, but all of us together are in the presence of our holy and righteous God. This is our hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that reveals to us such amazing truths. We pray that though we are hard of hearing, that you would grant us grace. God, that you would allow us to live lives which truly please you and which truly obey your word and find hope and comfort and encouragement and strength in the certainty of your words. We pray that as we go through life that we would have an ever-growing dependence on you. Amen. Would you all please stand? alone my hope is found he is my light my strength my song this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are stilled when striving cease my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless pain. This gift of love and righteousness Scorned by the ones He came to save Till on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on Him was laid Here in the death of Christ I
and glorious day up from the grave he rose again and as he stands